Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter twelve, and um, we obviously we looked at the, the verses one and two. The first four from Hebrews chapter eleven, as it flows into chapter twelve, um, it, it looks back but moves forward. Maybe that's the way to put it. Uh, when we looked at the uh, end of chapter 11 into the first two verses of chapter 12 last week, verse 1 of chapter 12, wherefore, or therefore, seeing we also are so compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And so the uh, writer of Hebrews uh, is saying uh, all of these uh, people in Hebrews chapter 11, this, this, these people of faith, are testimonies. They are witnesses uh, to us, challenges to us, if you will, to live by faith, to go on by faith. Uh, and they are, uh, test- they are we're, we're, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So we need to run the race, set aside the sin that easily besets us. And the way we do that, verse 2, is we look on to Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith uh, from A to Z from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, he is uh, the one who uh, brings our faith to fruition. Uh, For the joy that was set before him, verse 2, which is, I believe, two things there. One would be the resurrection. Uh, He endured the cross, it says, as it went on in verse 2. Despising the shame, he endured that because uh, he knew three days later he would come out of the grave. Uh, but he endured that uh, for the joy that was set before him, not just the resurrection, but as a result of the resurrection, uh, untold, untold multitudes, millions and millions and millions uh, of sons and daughters would be brought into the kingdom through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, so we need, to, we need to focus on Jesus. Now, in the context of this whole thing, And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight uh, as we get into verses 3 and 4 tonight. Lay some background for where we're going uh, is the context of this book. So let me just read what I wrote down here on your notes. We are again reminded to consider Jesus. That is in verse 3, for consider him. Back in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we are also told back uh, then to consider Jesus. Well, we're reminded again to consider Jesus. He lived a perfect life, and all he did was for the benefit of others. Yet consider what he put up with, what he endured, what he went through. 
uh, for the benefit of those who persecuted him. You know, the, the creator was persecuted by his creation. Um, this challenge is pivotal. In the, charge, in the change of recipients, this portion of the letter is addressed to. Because there's going to be a, 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 a real, in a sense, 180 degree change here. At least in the short term. That is verses 5 through 11 that we're going to get to, not this week, uh, Lord willing, next week, where the illustration embraces family and it embraces discipline. So he, he moves from certainly the Hebrews, the Jewish people, professing and possessing, where in 5 through 11, he addresses truly believers, truly saved people, those who are born again, those who are children of God. Now, um, the book itself, the book of Hebrews, written to Jewish people in danger of going back to Mosaic practices because of the persecution occurring. Uh, warning them, don't, don't go back to the Mosaic practices. What this book does show, Hebrews, is that Jesus is better than all those things that were revered in Judaism. Angels, Moses, priesthood, high priest the law, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, etc., etc., etc. Jesus is much better than all of those things. Uh, faith has always been the method of pleasing God, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. No one has ever pleased God by works. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. This book is calling these people to believe and follow God in his revealed will, which is the word of God. Now, some of these Jewish people only professed a belief in Jesus as Messiah. In other words, they weren't truly saved. They had a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. And this is very applicable down through the ages. Uh, we find that uh, throughout history, a lot of people give lip service Jesus is the Savior, they don't have a heart knowledge. That's one of the groups of Jewish people addressed here in this book. They only have a professed belief in Jesus as Messiah. They're not truly saved. To these individuals, to these people, there are four warnings that have been given to them not to go back to the old system, that is, Mosaism but to come to true faith in Messiah Jesus. And we looked at those warning passages, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 6, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And there's one additional warning passage still to come. Five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And that's later on in the 12th chapter, the warning passage. To the Jewish people, who are truly believers, the book is an encouragement to continue in their walk and growth in their Messiah. To go back to the law would impede and hinder their growth and service for God. Now, obviously, these things are applicable uh, to those who wouldn't be Jewish. Uh, but again, it's the book of Hebrews written to the Jewish people. And we're not going to recount 11 chapters up to this point. 
Now, before we consider verses 5 through 11, which we're not going to consider tonight, I want to remind ourselves of some basic truths. Because again, 5 through 11 is discipline. God disciplining his children. But before we get to that point, which again, Lord willing, will be next week, uh, I, I want to uh, maybe crystallize in our thoughts and our understanding some points uh, before we move on. Point number one. God has disciplined Israel as a nation because of a father-son relationship. In Exodus 4.22, it says, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. No other nation has that type of relationship. In Amos 3.2, speaking of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So there's only been one unique nation in the history of the world, Israel. Israel is referred to by God as his son. A good parent, a good father, will discipline his son, his children. God disciplines Israel. We'll look at that at times and, and what he has done. God also disciplines individuals. His, his children who are individuals like David, like Saul. And I'm thinking here of King Saul, not the Apostle Saul. I know you want to call me Apostle Paul. That's fine. You can call me Apostle Paul. And we've talked about what was was Saul's name changed to Paul? No. No. Common misconception. All you have to do is go back to Acts and read it. His name was not changed to Paul. Saul, who was also called Paul. That's what the text says. So in the Jewish world, he was known as, uh, by his Jewish name, Saul. In the Roman world, he was named by his known by his Roman name, Paul. And, you know, and I used the illustration, um, my, I don't know if you'd call it Roman name, uh, my English name uh, is Mark. But I do have a Hebrew name. At my circumcision, I was given my Hebrew name, and my Hebrew name is Mikhail, Michael. Michael Halevi, Mikhail Halevi. So if, 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 if I was called up in a synagogue, if I was there and called up to read the, the, the Torah, you know, the, the scrolls, um, they would ask me, what's your Hebrew name? They wouldn't say, would Mark Robinson come up and read the Torah? They, said, they would say, would Mikhail Halevi come up and read the, the, the Torah? Um, and they would refer to me that way. So, Apostle Saul, Apostle Paul, you know, and, and he being the apostle to whom? The Gentiles, that would be the Romans, not, you know, not just the Romans, but he came in then, he would be primarily known then as Paul. And so he's become, it's become accepted that he's the apostle Paul, but he's the apostle Saul as well. So. 
Yeah, he had two names. Like, I have two names. Um, but, yeah, in Rome, he was known as Paul. It, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was Saul who was also called Paul. Anyway, um, we won't belabor that, probably belabored it way too much already. Um, but that's what we need to be a little bit more, um, we need to read the Bible a little bit closer at times, right? But, you know, we, sometimes we just take for granted something you've heard taught, and it may or may not be true. So be Bereans, right? Receive the word of God with all readiness of mind. Go home daily and search the scriptures to see what? Whether those things are correct or true. Okay. So um, God also disciplines individuals. David, Saul here being King Saul, I'm talking about, although uh, Saul the apostle or Paul the apostle, whatever. Uh, but you and, you, you and me as well. If you're a child of God, you will be disciplined. And that's next week. And we will look at that. Uh, in detail. Now, Israel, though, is the son of God. Exodus 4 uh, and the unique nation. So God has disciplined them down throughout history. The discipline of Israel, uh, of the nation, has at times been direct, where God has actually done it. For example, to turn to 2 Chronicles. I didn't want to write down all of these verses. Uh, but turn to 2 Chronicles 36. Oh, where do I start here? I start in verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up oftentimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So God would send messengers, prophets, to his people, to the Jewish people, Israel. He had compassion on them. He also had compassion on his dwelling place. And God's dwelling place was where? The temple in Jerusalem. But they... Instead of receiving the messengers, they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Ultimately, uh, it reached the point of no return. And when it reaches the point of no return, the only thing left is God's judgment. Um, it's happened down through history. It's happened to Israel. It's happened to nations. When will it happen to our country? Eh, I think it's close, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, verse 17, therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. Now, who are the Chaldees? Babylonians. He brought upon them. Who is the he? God. God actually brought the Babylonians and their king against the people of Israel for discipline. He brought Upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He, God, gave them all into his hand, into the king's hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon, that would be the king, 
and his army, uh, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, Cyrus. And verse 21 tells us why that would happen, because they didn't let the land enjoy her Sabbath for 70 Sabbath years, 490 years total. But the point I want you to see, God actually brought the Babylonians against Israel to discipline them. He had compassion on them. He sent them messengers, but then God actually disciplined them. Uh, we, we see that in the worldwide captivity as well. Now, we're not going to look at the Luke 19 passage, but the same type of thing is God sent them into worldwide captivity and brought the Romans at that time into Israel to destroy the nation and take the Jewish people into all the nations, ultimately as captive. That was a direct disciplinary action of God against the nation of Israel. Now, at other times, though, God's discipline has been indirect. Uh, I, I kind of equate it to this. It's such as when parents know a child is doing something wrong and yet allows the child to do it and reap the consequences so as to learn from the act and the consequences. Now, obviously, if you see a child doing something wrong that's uh, going to bring harm to that child, you would uh, you know, step in. But sometimes it, it's good just to let the child make a mistake, error, uh, and learn from their mistake. You know, mom and dad shouldn't jump in every moment uh, and intervene uh, in that child's life. Um, now, a three-year-old is different than a 10-year-old. I understand that. But at times, God just let things go. Things such as the pogroms in, in, in Poland, in that area of the world. You're, you're familiar with the pogroms in the late 19th century and, and what took place. Uh, the Holocaust. See, we, we cannot blame God for the Holocaust. And blame would be the right or would be the wrong word anyway. But when you're talking about a captivity or when you're talking about an atrocity, if the Bible is silent about it, there's no way we can attribute that um, occurrence to God. We shouldn't. The Babylonian captivity, very clearly, God brought Babylon against Israel to discipline her. Same with the worldwide captivity. But when you look at the Holocaust and you look at passages of Scripture, um, for example, um, look at Deuteronomy 31. Go back to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, and there's nothing in the Bible that directly speaks of the Holocaust itself. Deuteronomy 31 in verse 16, starting in verse 16, down through verse 21. The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. In other words, you're going to die. And this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they be wherever they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I've made with them. So God tells Moses, you're going to die. But prior to your dying, dying I want to let you know something. Uh, the people of Israel, they're going to revolt. 
they're going to rebel. They're going to follow false gods, the gods of the strangers of the land. They're going to forsake the God who brought them into existence, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah. And they are going to break my covenant. Verse 17. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? Now look what takes place. They have revolted, they have rebelled, they have gone after false gods. And so God tells Moses, when that happens, you're going to be dead, but when that happens, I'm going to be angry, God says. My anger is going to be kindled, and in that day, I will turn my back from them. I will hide my face from them. In other words, my protection is removed. Then what will happen? They're going to be devoured. There's going to be evil that shall come upon them. Trouble shall be uh, befall them. Now, is this a direct action of God bringing these evils upon them? No. It's an indirect action. God removed his uh, protection uh, because of the sin of Israel. And as a result of that sin and God removing that protection, all kinds of troubles, all kinds of evils, all kinds of things would take place like the Holocaust. Then in verse 18, And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, and that they are turned on to other gods. Verses 19 and 20 now. Now therefore, Moses, write ye this song for you. Teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths. That this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And, and Moses, you're going to die, yes. Before you die, I want you to put this together. I, I want you to write this down. I want you to teach it to the children of Israel that it will be a witness, it'll be a testimony to whose fault it is. Obviously, whose fault would it be? Israel's, not God's. Write it as a testimony. Write it as a witness for me against the children of Israel. Verse 20, For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swore unto their fathers that flows with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten... Um, and fill themselves and wax fat. Then they will turn on to other gods and serve them and provoke me and broke my covenant. And, and we could go on. It shall come to pass when many evils troubles are before me uh, that this song shall testify against them as a witness for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. And, and, and it goes on. This is God's indirect discipline. Write this down, Moses. Teach it the children of Israel. Rehearse it over and over and over again. That when you die, they're going to revolt. They're going to rebel. They're going to follow other gods. And this will be a witness that the problem is not when, when evils and troubles come. It's not me. It's them. I allowed it to happen because what they've done, but I have not directly brought it to happen. That would cover, for example, the Holocaust. God did not bring the Holocaust to be. Same with the pogroms. Now, God had removed his hand of protection when Israel rejected their Messiah centuries earlier. That left them open 
to all the evils, all the uh, devouring enemies that they have, and God's indirect discipline um, upon them. And so, when, when the scripture doesn't address it directly, we should not direct, direct, uh, address it directly either. Uh, God allowed it, certainly, but it was because of what they did. So there's this indirect um, discipline as well. But God disciplines Israel, very clear. Very clear. Now, point number two. The purpose of the, dis, uh, of, of the discipline, in this case Israel, let alone individuals, but the purpose of the discipline has always been, as with all discipline, to get the nation to turn back to the Father, to God, and enjoy the benefits of the covenantal relationship. Now, we'll see that is the exact same purpose for discipline for us. As individuals, as children of God, when we rebel, when we sin, God disciplines us, not because he's an org, not because he loves to spank, not because he loves to inflict pain on his children, he doesn't, but to make us fly right, straighten up, walk the walk. Look at with Israel, Leviticus 26, 40 through 45. And I have it down here. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their trespass, which they trespass against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me. So they, they're going to go, they're going to sin, they're going to follow other gods, they're going to rebel, they're going to break my covenant, I'm going to be angry, I'm going to let all of these troubles come upon thee. But if they confess their iniquity, now, we're going to see this ultimately in our lives too. But when we rebel and God disciplines us, what do we need to do? Confess our iniquity. You know, when, if you had children when, uh, uh, in your younger years, some of you are younger still. Um, did he discipline? Um, you don't want to say anything. Okay, take the fifth. Um, you know, the first thing you do in discipline is trying to get the child to say, I was wrong. Forgive me. That's the first step. That's what God is trying to do with Israel here. That's what he does with us as individuals. And we'll look at this later in more detail. So if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses, which they trespassed against me and that they walk contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and I brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled. Now, what does that tell you about their condition, most of these people? They're not saved. Circumcised heart in the Bible is the, exa it's, it's, it's the equivalent term to what is used in John 3 with Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again. Circumcised heart and born again same thing. If I tell you I have six eggs or half a dozen eggs, I'm telling you the exact same thing, right? I have one, two, three, four, five, six. Half a dozen or six, same thing. Circumcised heart, you're saved. You're born again. When it tells us here, <clears throat> they're uncircumcised in their heart. But they've got to be humbled. 
and then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. They need to recognize, I mean, and we, when you break this down, um, and, and yes, these are unsaved people, but he's speaking of a nation here now as well. <coughs> so he's, he, he, is, he is disciplining the nation. And we're going to get it. God doesn't discipline unsaved people, but we're talking about a nation as his son. And the only nation that is his son is Israel. Never been any other nation. You know, the United States is no different than Babylon, Rome, Germany, um, you name it. The only unique nation is Israel. They need to recognize this. They need to recognize their sin brought it to pass. They need to recognize that what God did was just and righteous and that type of thing. They need to humble themselves. They need to accept that uh, the punishment they received was just, was right. Then it goes on. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob. So, and also my covenant with Isaac. And also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. Not the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Yes. Yeah, the, the forefathers, remember, we're dealing with a nation. And when let me back up to an individual and then apply it to Israel, if you will. When we sin, it, it may be a week, a month before we get right about it. Hopefully it's a lot sooner than that. It's a very short period, period of time. When a nation sins, I mean, how long did it take for them to sin uh, before God brought them into Babylonian captivity? Decades. Decades. So the people who were living at that particular time, it may have been their grandfathers who started the sin. And so it's the nation that's, that's confessing it. Um, for, and, and along that line, go, go to uh, Exodus chapter 19. No, uh, maybe 20, maybe 20. Yeah, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. God gives it, when God gave the, the, the Ten Commandments are just part of the law, okay? Right? And whom did he give the law to? Israel, the nation. Now, if you were part of the nation, yes, you had to embrace the law. And if you were a proselyte uh, and got saved in, in, in this period of history, <coughs> you would join yourself to the nation of Israel and put yourself under the law. But the law was given to the nation. Then it goes in verse um, 5. That thou shalt not bow down, uh, and back up to verse 4, or verse 3. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Now what was the problem that was going to take place later on that God told Moses? They're going to have other gods, right? Yeah, but I don't want you to have any other gods before me, God says. Thou shalt not make unto the end any graven image, any likeness, and so on. <clears throat> Verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, 
This has been taught as generational sins. You've probably heard that. That if you're great, you know, third and fourth. So if you're one generation, your, your, your parents would be the next generation. Your grandparents would be the third generation, right? Your great-grandparents would be the fourth generation. And most of us don't have great-grandparents that are alive. Uh, and so people say, well, there's this generational curse that happens upon individuals, Exodus chapter 20. No. You can go to Ezekiel 18, for example, and it talks about individuals, and the child is not responsible for the father's sins and vice versa. This is national. This is to the nation of Israel. And when the nation sins, that will have repercussions for generations. So when we get to Leviticus chapter 26, that particular sin didn't necessarily happen with the Leviticus 26 generation, if I can put it that way. Uh, although, you know, it, it happened, although this is prophecy too, it's, it's throughout the history. It can go back four generations. So what it's saying, as a nation, we recognized our rebelliousness, our sin. Not only ourselves, but we've, our, our, our nation is rebelled. So that's what it's saying uh, there. Because when we sin individually, it doesn't... We're going to look at David. When David committed adultery, and murder for that matter, he was visited by Samuel, right? Remember that story? The prophet? Nathan, not Samuel, Nathan, the prophet. And he was at the, the point of, uh, with Bathsheba, seeing that child born. Remember the story? And what did Nathan tell him? child's going to die. So how long had that sin occurred? How long ago had that sin took place, happened? Pardon? Not even one? No, no, no. David and Bathsheba, and you're gonna, your child's going to die, not born yet. Not even, se not even second generation. How long is that, um, how long is the... Um, Nine months, thank you, <laughs> you know, nine months. I was trying to think of the word, uh, you know. Um, no, it was only nine months. That's not a long time, but that's an individual. So from the time that David committed that sin to the time that he was looking at death, it was nine months, not a long time. But when you get a nation, nine months is nothing in the, in the life of a nation. And... Um, and actually, when you, when you think of, um, we didn't look at verse 21 of Second Chronicles 36. Remember why they went into Babylonian captivity? I may have mentioned it real quick in passing. They didn't let the land rest every seventh year. There was a law of the land Sabbath. Plant for six years, let it rest on the seventh. Yes. Well, that's just. No, they let the whole land rest for, in the seventh year. That was God's command. Let the whole land rest for seventh year. <clears throat> in the sixth year, I'll, I, I will give you enough of a harvest to not only give you food for the seventh year, but for the eighth year. Because. You let it rest the seventh, you're not planning until the eighth, and then you've got to wait through that basically the whole year to get 
the harvest again. There's <coughs> the whole land. They didn't let the land rest every seventh year. For how many total years did they not let the land rest? 490 years. <coughs> so God says, I will take you out of the land for 70 years. This is Second Chronicles 36 again, still. That the land might enjoy her Sabbaths. They went into Babylonian captivity because for 490 years they didn't let the land rest. And you divide 7 into 490, you have 70 Sabbaths. 490 years of disobedience before, before the, uh, the hammer came down. You know, I don't want to say the, the, the switch or whatever. Um, you don't discipline with a hammer. But anyway, be that as it may, you shouldn't discipline with a hammer. That's a long time. You know, David was nine months, but Israel was 490 years. So those people would need to confess the sins of their fathers because this is a national thing. And think of Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. He didn't only confess his sins, he confessed the sins of the people. We have sinned against thee. And God restored them, that type of thing. So that, that's so when you get into... Uh, confessing the iniquity of their fathers. Again, this is, this is God's unique relationship with Israel, or maybe better put, Israel's unique relationship with God. This, this is not true for any other nation. This is not true for any other nation at any other time in all of history. You, you know, my favorite radio teacher, no, I, you know how, Glenn Beck. Don't listen to Glenn Beck. Don't, don't put too much stock into what he says. That, that, you know, that we're a covenant nation and the Constitution is God-breathed and all. No, 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 no. He's so wrong on this. Um, but he's wrong on a lot of stuff. Um, we are not unique as a nation. We've been blessed. Yes. But we're not unique. Look at verse 42. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. The land also should be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths. Why shall I desolate without them? That's the Babylonian captivity. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because even because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. And even though they've rebelled, they've, they've turned other gods, I've had to discipline them, even when they're in the, the land of foreigners, I will not utterly destroy them because I am a covenant-keeping God. Israel is my son, nationally, nationally. But I will, for their sakes, remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. So the whole purpose of that discipline was that Israel would, would ultimately turn back to the Lord and get the covenantal blessings. Now, the fruition of this in Israel's life will be the end of the tribulation period, Zechariah 12, when all the nations of the world come against Israel and they're back as it was as against that proverbial wall. They have nowhere to turn and then they look up and it says in verse 10, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. 
and they shall mourn. And, and so, and, and then, they, then that covenantal blessing, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, the millennial kingdom is set up, uh, and uh, everything around the Abrahamic covenant. And don't ever uh, diminish the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, it's, it's, it's the whoop, Wolf and the warp of the entire word of God. It's, 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 it's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Most important verses in the entire word of God. Genesis 12, 4 through the end of Revelation is commentary on the first three verses of Genesis 12. All it is, commentary. How I'm going to work out those three basic promises of a land, a seed, and a blessing. Uh, and we're not going to, we've talked about that in the past. We don't have time to go down that right now. Uh, but it's to bring Israel back to the place God wants them. Now, look at point number three. It is important that we differentiate, differentiate between God's judgment as creator, his discipline as a father, and the trial of faith which children of God will also undergo for our sanctification. We need, to dis we need to differentiate between God's judgment as creator God, God's discipline as a father, and then the trial of faith, which all children of his will go through. Now, what about God's judgment? Well, let me even read. I, I missed a paragraph. The, the manifestation of each of these can be the same. God's judgment, God's discipline, and the trial of faith. Illness, death, loss of job, financial setback, etc. So it can be a trial of faith. It can be discipline. Uh, it could be judgment that God brings on uh, an unsaved person. The manifestation can be the very same thing. But the cause, entirely different. Now that's important when we talk about verses 5 through 11, God's discipline of his children. God disciplines his children. And if you rebel, if you disobey, God's going to spank you. And we're going to look at that. But there are times in our life that we will go through the trial of faith. And the trial of faith can be a setback financially. It can be health issues. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be a host of different things. Discipline can be financial setback. Health issues. Even loss of a loved one. But the cause is not the same. And I say that to say, well, Joe Christian just lost his job and is having all kinds of problems. What did he do so bad that God's spanking him so much? He may not be being disciplined by God. It, just, it may be a trial of faith to strengthen him and not discipline. Now, it could be discipline, but it doesn't have to be discipline. So... so all of that say, when a child of God, when a believer has difficulties in their life, whatever it might be, don't jump to the conclusion 
that they did something wrong. So God's spanking them. And we'll look at that more later. So as judge, as creator, God has the right and the authority to judge, punish all sin. God is the owner of everything. God is the creator of the universe. God is the owner of all the animals. He's the owner of, of all creation, all mankind. As creator, he has the right to judge all of his creation. He's done this with nations, for example. He brought nations into existence. He judged Egypt. He judged Babylon, Isaiah 47, 1 through 11. He'll judge all nations at the end of the tribulation period. God has the right to judge nations for their sin because he is the creator. And they ultimately, as all of us have, a responsibility to respond to him. He'll judge nations at the second coming. And nations there are individuals, the sheep and the goats, the goats being the ones here that are judged by God, the individuals who are not saved at the end of the tribulation. God will judge all unsaved people at the great white throne judgment. Remember it says in Revelation 20, the books are opened and the people are judged out of their book, out of those books. Those who are found written in the book of life, they're in heaven. But those not found in the Lamb's book of life, they are judged out of the books. Now, what are the, what's contained in those books? I think there's a lot of stuff. I think one of the primary things that is contained is your exposure, the unsaved individual, his exposure to the gospel, to the truth. To whom much is given, much is required. I wouldn't doubt that in those books, under George, Gerald, and Frank, and I don't know, they're gonna, he's going to have them separately. There's going to be a record, well, on Friday night, what's today, the 22nd, 21st, what's today, whatever, 22nd. On Friday night, the 22nd, Hal reminded us to pray for the salvation, George, Frank, and Gerald. And we prayed that God would convict them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come. God will answer that prayer. It doesn't mean they're going to be saved. And I convicted you of your sin, and you rejected me. And so you are more responsible than this person who's never been prayed for. And more than that, in answer to that prayer, I sent Hal along one day, and he talked to you about Jesus, and you didn't listen to him. You didn't want to listen to him. So I, I think one of the things in the books is the spiritual... Um, light, truth that individuals have and reject it. But I think there's other things. You know, all sin is sin. Uh, and, but there are different degrees of sin and how God deals with it. And we will look at that next week uh, because God says there is a sin unto death. But not all sins are a sin unto death. Know what passage that's from? Come next week, you'll find out. 1 John 5. So there is a sin unto death, but not all sins are sins unto death. That means there's different sins that are a little bit more um, 
weighty, I guess you could. Yeah, I'll use that word. You know, God deals with it a different way. So he judges individuals. Um, so I think there'll be, you know, a murderer. The murderers will be there. You know, uh, and all these other acts in the books. You know, but I think first and foremost will be the spiritual. So God judges nations. Now turn the page over. The trial of faith. 1 Peter 1.7, talking to believers, says this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, unto on, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Trial of faith. All, all God's children will go through a trial of faith at some time. We will be tested. Here's some examples of those who went through what is called the trial of faith. Job. Did, did Job have a trial of faith? He certainly did. You know, God, don't let us have his trial of faith. You know, what, what happened to Job? Take, take, take his family. After he took, what else did he take? First he took before his family all your stuff, all your material, all your stuff. Um, <coughs> You know, he was a righteous man, right? Remember the whole story, Job and Satan. and the, That was a trial of faith um, that he had. Abraham in Genesis 22, trial of faith. Take now your son, your only son. Take him to the land of Moriah and offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. Kill him for me. Abraham never questioned it. You know the story. But was that a trial of faith? Are you going to believe me, Abraham? And he did. It's a trial of faith. How about Daniel? He went through all kinds of trials of faith. Um, wouldn't have been a lot easier if Daniel just you know, didn't pray openly? He wouldn't have to worry about that, uh, that, that fiery, that furnace, or the, or the lions. Or any of that stuff, right? I mean, eh, just pull the shades down and pray. So they don't notice outside. Well, he went through a trial of faith. He, he wanted to honor God, and God got him through it. Peter and John, Acts 4, 13 through 21. Remember what? Don't preach this Jesus, the authorities said. Well, it would have been easier not to preach him. They would have been fine, but they said what? is more important that we do what? We obey God before these are all trials of faith. Hebrews 11 is just littered with examples of trials of faith. A trial of faith is something that all of God's children go through to wean us, to sanctify us, to make us stronger. It can be financial, it can be health, it can be all kinds of different things. And, and that's why Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is so important when it gets to faith. You know, put aside the, that besetting sin, uh, run the race with patience, uh, and focus on Jesus and how he got through the trials in his life. Trial of faith. Then there's God's discipline of his children. And understand this. God only disciplines his children. He does not discipline Satan's children. You know, one of the biggest lies of the world is that we're all God's children. How many times have you heard that? You know, everybody's God's children. So, now, 
I don't think any of them, no, we won't go down there. But anyway, are God's children. Yeah. Some of them are probably God's children. But anyway, um, we are all God's creation. And as creator, God has the right to discipline us, uh, to judge us, not discipline us, judge us. But there are two families in the world, spiritually speaking. Look at 1 John 3.10. In this, the previous nine verses, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. There are, th there are a number of criteria in the first nine verses of 1 John 3 that establish whether you're a child of God or the child of the devil. Spiritually speaking, you're in one of two families. You're God's child or you're Satan's child. John 8, 44, you have your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and bode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so the, the devil is your father. Verse 12, verse 8 of chapter 12, and we'll be there, Lord willing, next week. <clears throat> but if ye be without chastisement, punishment, discipline, whereof all our partakers, and, and, and who he is addressing here, the writer of Hebrews, is children of God. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all our partakers, how many of God's children are partakers of discipline? all. So if you don't have discipline, what are you? Verse 8. You're a bastard. You're not a son. God's not your father. You're not his child. Because God disciplines every one of his children. The point I want to, want to make is, is the only people that God disciplines is his children. He doesn't discipline Satan's children. Now, he can judge them because he's creator, but he doesn't discipline them. Discipline is a role of a father to a child. And Satan and his children, God will not discipline Satan's children. Underline it, mark it down, because you're either in God's family or you're in Satan's family. And if you're in God's family, you will be disciplined if you disobey. Again, next week. You've got to come back next week after all these times I'm mentioning it, right? Okay. Um, God disciplines only his children. Now, point number four. Discipline is vital in the life of a child. God clearly instructs us to discipline our children. To withhold discipline is to invite disaster into a child's life. In the same type of way, discipline is vital in the life of God's children. All discipline is ultimately for the benefit of the recipient. Just consider some of these verses from Proverbs on discipline. In the lips of him that hath understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. You know, if somebody, if a child doesn't have wisdom, you better take the rod to him and help him straighten up. Now, he that spares his rod hates his son, but the rod of, um, uh, he, but he that loves him chastens him oftentimes. Three times in the, in the King James is often. Wow. Boy, Dr. Sp not Spock, Speck. Spock? Okay, I'm thinking of the guy on, okay, Dr. Spock. Benjamin, you know, there can be two Spocks, I guess. You can have Star Wars Spock, and you can have, you know, you know, 
Okay, Dr. Spock, was he ever wrong? And boy, did we raise a generation of, uh, of, um, of uh, AOCs and such. But anyway, rebellious, uncontrollable people. Um, you know, we're, we're reaping the fruit. We really are as a nation of no discipline. Um, anyway, for, next one. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. You know, foolishness is part of the sin nature. It's part of a child's life. And the only way you're going to get that foolishness away from is, is to use the rod of correction. And rod, it's a Hebrew word. It's a very, you know, it's a very deep and, and, and intricate Hebrew word that actually means rod. It, it does. It means a rod. You know, you know like, Pardon? No, a branch from the from the a good strong branch from the tree. Okay. No, not your hand. You should use a, a, a rod, not your hand. Um, you know, a, a, a branch from the tree. Um, you know, or when I was in junior high, I'm, I'm you know, in in eighth grade, the the boys took shop. It was required, and the girls took home 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 ed whatever it was home ed. I didn't take that. You know the first project it was for the boys in shop? We had to make a paddle out of wood. And it was to, and, and it was to certain specifications. And it had to be so long and so thick, you know, some of them tried to make it thin, and it was rejected. And you got to go back to the drawing board and start again. And then when you finally got your paddle made, you put your name on it. And, it, and, they, and they hung it in the principal's office. They did. They hung it in the principal's office. And if you disobeyed, you got, you got hit with your paddle. Now, I was a good boy. <laughs> okay, I'll admit it. I was, my paddle was used on me. You know, I don't know why. I think they were mistaken. I, you know, I used a, it, it's just, you know, you got the wrong person here, principal. You know, it's the guy down the road. Bob that did it, not me. You should, so, it's all Bob's fault. Coming and going is Bob. Think of that. In junior high, in a public school, we made the paddle that we would be paddled with if we deserved it. And I deserved it. I, a few times, you know. I won't tell you the whys and the wheres and the why, you know. That would never go over today. But, you know, it straightened people out. And, and you didn't hear, parents knew about it. And my, my parents said, good. If, you, if, they, if they use it on you, you deserve it, good. You know, anyway. Next one. Withhold not correction from the tri for the child. If thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod, shall deliver his soul from hell. See, it, 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 what it develops in that child is, is a respect for authority. Discipline. If you disobey, you're going to have to face authority and the consequences for it. I remember meeting with a pastor. I hope I get through this. Um, a number of years ago now, in the 90s, a church about 900. And it's gotten much worse since then. We're 20 years down the road. And he said to me, he said, 
man, oh man, I just don't understand. We used to be able to go out and visit and knock on doors and, and talk to people about the Lord. People would respond. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. And the reason that, and he said, I don't understand. I told him what I thought the reason was. Uh, but basically it is, we, we've removed <coughs> the concept of sin and responsibility and judgment or discipline from our society. So there's no sin anymore and there's no responsibility and there's no judgment. Uh, and, and so what you were seeing is the fruit of that in the 90s. It's worse today. It's very, very difficult to get somebody saved. Because they have to first realize you're lost before you're going to go to a savior. And we have raised a generation of people. There's no absolutes. There's no white and black, meaning not color of skin, but right and wrong. Everything's gray. And so it's much, much, much more difficult to get somebody lost because they've got to be introduced to the concept of sin. You, if, you would, if you would talk to any, go into any public school and, and talk to 17, 18 year olds, what is sin? They're not going to have a clue. I, I, 90%, 98% of them won't have a clue. We have re, and the rod of correction teaches people you sinned, you disobeyed. There's a responsibility on your part. Discipline or judgment will come as a result. And it, and, it, and it forms them to ultimately respond to the God of all creation, the God of judgment, that if you don't respond to him, then you will be judged. And the rod of correction is important there. The rod, the next one, and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. Is discipline important? Certainly. Now, in the light of the possibility of God's children disobeying and straying, the next two verses implore us to consider our life in relation to Jesus and what he has been through on our behalf. If we don't, we can be defeated in our walk with the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 of, verse, of chapter 12, which we're going to look at rather quickly, um, in light of all that we see, it builds on the first two verses, but it's dealing with children of God now. In the light of the possibility that we can stray, children of God, we can stray, we are implored to consider Jesus in relationship to us, our life, understanding what he has been through. If we don't do this regularly, we can be defeated in our walk with the Lord. Look at verse 3. For consider... Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest you, believer, be wearied and faint in your minds. We are told to consider. In other words, focus our attention on Jesus and what he went through for us. He endured the con such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now, endured itself portrays a picture of steadfastly and unflinchingly bearing up under a heavy load 
and describes that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. <clears throat> the picture is that of a steadfastness, constancy, endurance. When you endure, you, 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 you just look straight ahead. You continue down the path. You are going to ultimately get through. You know it, and you just are like a flint, steadfast in what you do. <clears throat> Jesus endured the contradiction of sinners. He endured, page three, such contradiction of sinners against himself. Think of this. The perfect God-man allowed his creation. Sinners who deserved his judgment, his wrath, to carry out an unjust trial and then judgment against him who was innocent completely. They mocked, they spit on the Holy One of Israel. They enacted a death penalty. Do common criminals, not the unblemished Lamb of God. Jesus endured the contradiction of sin. See, what should have been done? He should have been judging them. He should have been pouring out his wrath upon them. Justly, righteously, so. But he didn't. He allowed them, the sinners, to unjustly pour their wrath out in an unjust trial upon him. And he endured the contradiction of sinners. And he did that for us. We need to always keep in mind what Jesus has done for us. We need to always consider what he has done. Whenever the going gets tough, the tough don't get going. The tough focus on Jesus. You've got to focus on the Lord. Forsaking those things, looking onto Jesus, verse 2 says. If we don't, what's going to happen? Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. One of the most debilitating things in a believer's life, and this is a believer we're talking about, not an unbeliever, is to get to a point of weariness that leads to giving up in our minds, fainting or depression. This is not someone like that we prayed for earlier, David, who's seemingly going through depression now. He's an unbeliever. He has no resource to fight it. This is for believers. And if we don't continually focus and understand in our life, in our heart, in our mind, what Jesus has done for us. We can get to the point that we are going to, as it says here, be wearied and faint in your minds, even to the point of depression. We don't have to. We have the resources the world doesn't have. There's no reason for a Christian to be depressed. If there's depression in the life of a believer, it's because there's some issue in your life, your spiritual walk is not what it is. 
It doesn't matter the situation. You can be uh, living a life of victory where everything's going fine, the blessings and so on. Uh, or you can be living a life where you've got all kinds of trials, health, financial, whatever the case might be. But your mind, if it's steadfast on Jesus, you will never enter into depression. <clears throat> I know what depression is. When I was lost, some of you know my testimony, I attempted suicide many, many years ago as an unsaved young man. And uh, I was unconscious for two weeks in the hospital. They couldn't get me to consciousness. I was, I was, in, the, I was in as probably as deep of a depression as one could be. They tried drugs. They tried all kinds of things. The only thing that would bring me back to consciousness was electric shock treatments over a two-week period. And that did. But I remember the, the, the depression going into that, and the deep depression I was in, and then coming out of it on the other side. And the depression, I didn't come out of my room for, for months. I was like a, I could tell you, you know, and the whole story. And, and depression was terrible. But I had no resource. I had no power uh, to fight it. And when I came to the Lord a few years later, <clears throat> I have not had a single battle with depression in the last, I was 27, so what is that? You know, and I was just turned, uh, bloop. <laughs> Not, no, you're aging me too quickly there. <clears throat> 43 years, 43 years ago. Um, thank God, thank God, because I battled it before that. We have resources. But if you don't focus on Jesus, you don't walk with Jesus, and you let the world get a hold of you, and you don't, as it says here, consider Jesus, you, you're, in the, you're in the position of being wearied in your mind and fainting in your mind, in other words, depression. We're, see, we're in a spiritual battle. Uh, <clears throat> think of the issues we face. Look at number one. Number one, and we have an enemy constantly seeking to destroy us, right? 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to devour each child of God. Number two, we have the infiltration of enemy agents into our camp. In Acts 20, 29, and 30, we are told, for I know this, Paul says, <clears throat> that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So there are wolves coming from the outside. But then notice the next verse. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Not only is the enemy trying to come in from the outside against us, but the enemy has put um, agents, spies within our midst to try to destroy us. So we have enemy agents that we've got to deal with. We've got the spread of misinformation, lies. 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I fear lest by any means, <coughs> as the serpent beguiled Eve through, the subtly, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted <coughs> from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, we hear so many lies about the Bible, about Jesus, and... and, and um, we need, we need to be grounded in the Word of God. That's where we start in Hebrews 11, what faith is. Because Satan will try to deceive us. You know what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the beginning? 
with Eve specifically initially? He misquoted the word of God. How did, Jesus, how did, how did Satan deal with, with Jesus in, in the 40 days? He, he misquoted the word of God. He used the word of God out of context, misquoted it. Lies. Now, an interesting parallel to, to this in our spiritual warfare is the challenge to Israel when they went to war. Again, as God's son, as a nation. <clears throat> Israel, when going to war, war, was commanded to not faint and be fearful as they were reminded that God was fighting for them. Deuteronomy 20. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies and seest horses, chariots, and people more than thou, <coughs> be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So who do they have to focus on? God, not the enemy. And it shall be when you come nigh and near unto battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear. Don't be depressed. Don't be fearful. Don't faint. Fear not. And do not tremble, neither be you terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. You've got to focus on the Lord. I remember, and I've got a few minutes left. I will get through this. Um, <clears throat> years ago, the only time that I can remember of actively dealing with a demon-possessed person and it was after a Bible study on a, I think it was a Friday night, as I remember. I don't, Cheryl wasn't with me. We weren't married then. I was a young, foolish believer that I would run up to the gates of hell with the Bible and uh, you know, spit on the demons. But anyway, um, she was demon-possessed. I could tell you stories. She was really demon-possessed. And I had a co-worker with me, and, and he had his wife and their newborn baby with him, and, and we were approaching midnight trying to... Tr I don't believe in exorcism. I, that, that's, that's a lie of Satan. Um, if you, if you remember, it, it was in Acts chapter 7, I think, and the sons of Siva. <coughs> if, you get, if you get the seven demons out, what's going to happen when they leave and you leave? They're more are going to come back. <clears throat> it's not good enough just to get the demons out. You've got to get the Lord in. So to do that, you've got to get somebody saved. <clears throat> so we weren't, we weren't casting out demons. We were trying to get this poor girl saved. <clears throat> and uh, Ron was with me, and Ron said, I've got to go. I've got to go. I, I just, my wife and child, we've got to go. It's midnight. <clears throat> I said, okay, please ask someone to come in and join me. Better that you have two. Okay, two minutes went by, five minutes went by, ten minutes went by, and I'm thinking, where's my help? And I started getting scared. Here I am alone with this demon, and eyes rolling in her head, all kinds of stuff, different voices. And I started getting scared. And you should have seen her face. It went from, from a... Uh, how do I put it? It went from a, uh, a, a disappointed face, grin, scowl, to a demonic grin. It was unbelievable. And, 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 the vo and another voice spoke. And right away I said, Mark, 
this battle is not yours. I'm thinking this, I'm not speaking out loud. I said, this is the Lord's battle. I said, you have nothing to fear. You don't need anybody else. here. You and God are a majority. He that is greater than you, and this verse came to mind in 1 John 4, 4. He that is greater than you is greater than he that is in the world. And I said, I spoke right to the demon. I said, you have no power over me. I said, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is my savior. And you can't do anything against me because of Jesus. And that wicked grin turned into a scowl at that point. And then I said, let's go home. <laughs> I had enough. <laughs> she didn't get saved. And I drove her home. And she turned back into, I don't remember her name. It's been many years. I mean, we've been married forever, it seems. I mean, it's been good, honey. I'm not, don't mean to, you know. That was the wrong way to put it. So it's been a long time. So it's been a long time. I came out wrong. Came out wrong. Forgive me, Lord. You know, I have a good wife. I know. And we weren't married. She wasn't even at the Bible study. You were, yeah. And so I just took this gal home, and she was just uh, normal all the way home. We talked. That's it. <clears throat> but when I feared, the whole thing changed. Okay. Um, God's fighting. Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And then verse 4. Ye have not resisted on the blood, striving against sin. Robert Sumner says these two words, resisted and striving in our King James, are the two strongest words for conflict in the New Testament. In other words, we have not resisted and strived unto our death. Obviously, these people being written to here have not died. They're not martyrs for the faith because they're, they're reading the letter. They're alive. But what it's implying is you may get to that point that you will have to die for your faith. But you have not resisted <laughs> unto blood yet. Consider Jesus. He willingly died. The contradiction of sinners for you. So the first four verses of this chapter set the stage for the challenge to believers about God's loving discipline of his children, verses 5 through 11. And Lord willing, we will look at that next week. Differentiate between the different judgments. God is creator, God is father, trial of faith. But the, but Consider Jesus. Look, as it says in verse 2, looking onto Jesus. Looking away from everything else and focusing on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And never forget, always consider <coughs> what he has done. Um, I thought I had put the verse down here. I guess not. Um, maybe I missed it. Uh, it, it talks in um, Peter, First uh, Peter not 5.8. Um, oh, well, it's not down here. About always being, Peter says, I will, I will not neglect to remind you of these things. <clears throat> Remembrance. What he's talking about is the basics. You know, certainly we want to get a little deeper into Scripture at times, 
but there are some basic things we always need to be reminded of. And the primary thing we need to be reminded of is what Jesus has done for us. That's why he's given us communion. When we do communion, who do we focus on? Jesus and what he has done. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. In that sense, we should focus on Jesus. We always needed to be reminded of that. And then we'll get to the point, if we always remember, we'll not be wearied, we will not faint, and we will then have that victorious entrance into heaven. I guess I didn't put it down here. I thought I did. Maybe that's next week. I was working on next week. We'll look at that next week. Focus on Jesus. Any thoughts? And we'll close with prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for our Savior, for your Son, our Savior. Lord, Jesus is our life. Consider the contradiction of sinners. That he endured the contradiction of sinners. He should have, back then, he should, he should have called uh, a legion of angels and judged them. But he let them judge him for us the spotless Lamb of God. What a Savior we have. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the relationship we have, Father. Bless our fellowship. Bless the food. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts our teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4400. Seven, seven. Shalom.